Good evening and welcome into another edition of Meet Me at Mutual. I'm your host, Daniel Shopdall, C70th Vat at C70. On Twitter, Alan Medlock at Red Dirt Redbird, a Medlock one, still out with baseball, uh, high school baseball duties. But I have joining us tonight, uh, Katie Wu from The Athletic. You know her, Katie J. Wu. Um, Katie, how are you doing tonight? I am well. Uh, it is officially one month until the first Cardinal spring training game of the season. So for those of you looking for a little bit of optimism, there's that. That that uh, number actually struck a little bit of fear into me as I was planning my spring training coverage. Uh, but I will say we're in a much better position this winter than last winter because we have a definitive time for baseball coming back. And it has yeah, been a minute I, I, since we've had that. A little bit. Well, and I, I, want, I mean, I'm thinking about this. this is the third time you've been on the show. And, you know, the first year, you just kind of get dropped into everything in the middle of spring training. And then last year, you have the lockout. So you actually, this is like your first time to really have this whole regular offseason and a date for spring training. Right. And I'm so thrilled that I think this is my last first. I was, I, we did my, my last, or my first winter meeting. So I got to cross mm-hmm. that off. My first winter warm up, my first writer's dinner. And finally, my first real spring training and then that's it then I am done no more first hopefully well you know a longer maybe like a, an NLDS haven't had that right. yet and going forward yeah I might say let's let's not write off the you know that world first world series or anything like that either <laughs> right. but um, another first weekend mark off probably not actually a first I'm sure there's many you were named Missouri sports writer of the year this year congratulations on that how how fun was that? Thank you. Um, it, it was super fun, really unexpected. I mean, I was looking at the candidates, not just in Missouri, but for all 50 states. And there's truly, I mean, you can't go wrong with, with anyone who was selected or nominated. So it really caught me by surprise. I know that Derek Gould had won in, in 2021 and uh, he's won a couple. Rick Hummel, of course, has won a couple. So to be able to go through and see the amount or the writers in Missouri that have won and to be able to put, have my name on that list was was really overwhelming. But a lot of that, of course, goes to the readers and the uh, the viewers, the subscribers, to the athletic Cardinals Twitter um, that that all plays a huge part into it. So very appreciative of that. Yeah, I, I'm, sl- I'm guessing that was just slightly more uh, rewarding than winning top cards on Twitter for the second straight year. Top cards on Twitter. That's a huge deal. I think I think they're pretty even. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, next year, if you win, you go into the Cardinal Twitter Hall of Fame. So 
um, that I, I just I don't know what we'll do then. Um, is then uh, our beloved Cardinals gifts in the Hall of Fame? Yes, you will be joining gifts if you win, and if Derek wins next year, he'll join him. Y'all, it's a it's a battle royale. We'll look what a forward time! To. What a what an honoree! <laughs> it's a it's amazing, uh, and, and the quality is is outstanding. You have really taken to Twitter. I mean, we talked about this a little bit last year, but. <sighs> Boy, I tell you, I, I don't know in the divisiveness that can come on on Twitter. I'm sure you get some of that, but it doesn't feel like you get maybe quite as much as I, I might have thought. Um, I I am happy that, you know, it's not obviously an overwhelming negative place. I do think that I have really tried hard to focus on the positive interactions than the negative ones. And everyone has a different way for how they deal with, with feedback and criticism, especially women on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But for me, I, I realized the less I amplify the negativity, the less people reach out. Because a lot of times the, when, when people are being negative or mean or crass, and I'm not talking about criticism of the coverage, right? right. Like everyone is welcome to their opinion. If, if you think an article fell short or you think an analysis fell short, I do want to hear that. And I'm never going to take that personally. But when it's just the, the baseless attacks like you're referencing and just the overwhelming negativity, the less I respond to it, the better. Because the people that resort to that, that they're looking for a place to amplify their negativity. Mm-hmm. And if I respond, I'm giving them what they want. So for me, it's just all about focusing on the positivity. There are a lot of fun people I've met online. Uh, I've met some incredible fans. I have met some of my closest friends now on Twitter uh, in terms of mm-hmm. baseball and sports journalism and media. So I really try to focus on those relationships and try to make social media as bearable as possible because it is such an instrumental part of the job. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you, you still get your criticism for your lineups, but that's, you know, that's just going to happen. I mean. <laughs> I'm used to it. <laughs> so before we get into this, this coming year, let's, let's look a little bit back at last year. What was, I mean, there was so much that went on last year and I want to talk about some of the stories that you wrote, but let's start first with Albert Pujols returning. What was it like? And I talked a little bit with Brendan Schaefer last week and Jeff Jones the week before about this, but what was it like for you to cover a guy like that coming back and in the history that went along with it? For me, it was, it was surreal because Albert Pujols was one of the last was the last player still playing of my childhood that I can Mm. remember so vividly. And you remember baseball players as a child I think differently than, than reality. Right. Right, So even in his, his time with the angels, I still viewed him as a teenager going up as Albert Pujols from the early two thousands. And I knew coming into the Cardinals clubhouse, I'm not sure if you remember this or I'm not sure why, why anyone would, but I wasn't there the day the press conference became official. Um, I was actually coming back from a bachelorette party. So Mm. I had a different kind of, run into with Albert for the first time. It was behind the clubhouse where the Washington Nationals played uh, in the spring. And it was so low key. It was just a couple of writers and he came out and he was nothing but nice and professional. And I said to myself, you can't cover him like you would cover someone that you watched as a kid. This is your job. He is the most important person on this team and he will be all year. So any way that you feel any nostalgia that you have, it goes out the window. And he made that really hard to do because he came (laughs) back in that second half and he was playing baseball and hitting baseballs just like he did when I was a kid. (laughs) 
And it was, you know, 20 years ago where I first witnessed that. And, and now to see that as a kid and have someone just really kind of over, like just overwhelm me as a child watching baseball and then to see it as a professional and have to find the words to cover that every single day. I mean, that was an incredible time just from a work perspective. And then of course you, you think about all the, the sentiments and, and what it meant for baseball and, and the seven, the chase for 700 and you just, it's overwhelming still to this day. So I, I think that was a once in a lifetime experience. I'm so thankful for it as a professional and I'm thankful for it as a, just a general fan of the game. I mean, when you have a chance to witness Albert Pujols in action every single day, that's something that I, I know Cardinals fans did not take for granted, and I hope the rest of the baseball universe didn't either. Yeah, I, I, I've i always been amazed about, and I know Derek's talked about it a lot, um, but the way that that you as professionals are professional, that you se- separate this fandom, if you will, from what you're doing. And, and I, don't, I don't think anything you know spilled out in your coverage at all, but I just, to me, it's like, how, how do you do that? I, I just couldn't imagine doing it. Well, for I, I'll, 700, I think, was probably the most incredible night of my career. Mm-hmm. And it, for it to happen at Dodger Stadium, I know Cardinals fans would have loved for it to happen at Bush Stadium. So would I. I think that would have been such a special moment. But the Dodgers did an excellent job of making that moment feel like it was a home game. And I know he has a lot of history and appreciation for the Dodgers organization, but they went all out with that moment. And I think that really captured the scene. But I, I will never forget this. We're sitting in the press box. All the writers, myself included, are scrambling to write 699 because that just happened yeah, in the at-bat right. prior. None of us have either, maybe Derek has. Uh, Derek sat a little far away from me. But none of us had, uh, in, in my circle, had filed 699 yet. We're still writing. But throughout that second half of the 2022 season, when, I mean, we're, we're media members. We're used to, to multitasking. I'm watching the game. I'm also finding stats. I'm writing. I'm tweeting. I'm every now and then texting my dad. But when <laughs> when Albert came up, everyone just kind of stopped what they were doing, you know, put their scorecards away, uh, laptops down, and we just watched. And I remember he came up and I knew. I said, there's no way he does not hit 700 here. Mm-hmm. And he does. And thinking back now to the Dodgers writers, who were some of my, my really good friends, I went to college with a couple everyone's reaction was just what just happened I remember I turned to John Denton and I said I think I just blacked out because I had <laughs> I couldn't remember that moment it was just so surreal and that's not necessarily coming from a oh my gosh I'm, I'm such a fan perspective that is just a just appreciating the magnitude of the moment mm-hmm. there and I think everyone from the players on the field to the fans in the stands to the media and the press box appreciated that moment yeah the the story the history beyond what Albert meant to this organization and everything like that was, was incredible. And uh, yeah, to, to watch it from a distance was amazing to be there every day had to be something to remember for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So beyond Albert, of course, there was also Wainwright Molina. Molina's obviously his last year. We weren't sure about Wainwright all year long. And one of the stories I remember you writing this year was sitting down with those two guys and going through their first start together on video. One, how did you come up with that idea? And two, what was that process like sitting down with those guys? Well, 
You know, I really wanted to make that story special, not for me, but because I knew this was something that was so St. Louis. I mean, you have two pinnacles in St. Louis and Adam and Yachty, and you have the record-breaking streak. And I just knew that this was something that the St. Louis fan base would appreciate and would love more than any of the other 29 fan bases out there because it was so St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And I'd been thinking about this streak because it was pretty evident, even when Yachty went on the injured list in June, that they were going to get it. So all summer I thought about it. And the more I thought about the story, the more I thought and I realized fans really do not care what I have to say about this streak. I mean, <laughs> they, they started playing together before I was even in middle school. How can I ju- do that career justice when I don't even remember the first half of those starts? They don't care about me. This is not a story about me. They want to hear what this means from Adam and Yachty. And I knew I had to come up with a good idea. Other, you know, they're, Yachty was in his last year of his career. We weren't sure about Adam. They have the right to say no to media requests. Mm-hmm. And so the more I was thinking about ideas, the more I just thought about everyone's going to be talking about start 325. What about start number one? And to both of their credit, they, they heard out my ridiculously long story pitch And the hardest part was getting them at the same place at the same time. And Adam Mm. Wainwright deserves a lot of credit for this. I I asked uh, him first. And he says, if you can get Yachty to say yes to this, we'll do it. So convinced Yachty. Took him a while. He said, I I don't want to say yes. I like the idea. But I don't want to say yes and not have the time to do it. Um, I I approached them about a month before. But the baseball schedule is very demanding. So he said, I like the idea. Let's, Let's keep talking about it. So... I went back to Adam. He has, of course, a schedule himself. And he said, the fact that you got Yachty to say he would consider it, how about you just tell me when he's ready and I will be there. So that was really awesome of Adam to do. And we, one month later, were able to sit down and have that conversation. And I mean, those two, I tell them all the time, they wrote that story for me, just the banter (laughs) and the way that they were so invested because they hadn't seen that, that start in 15 years either. And it cracked me up because... Everything about that was so predictable. Adam remembering everything. Yachty getting mad in real time about balls and strikes. <laughs> and to see them go back and, and, you know, transform to that moment, like I said, I just wanted to sit there and hope to get out of the way because those two crafted the whole thing. Yeah, it was it was incredible. Um, also, that hurt a little bit because I remember when those guys started. So, oh, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it is... I mean, it is. Uh, it is. It's been my not all of my watching the Cardinals, but a lot, a big chunk of it. And so, to be able to honor that was was incredible. And yeah, it, it, it's always we know we you hear the stories about Yachty and Wainwright and their and their com- connection with each other, but to be able to see it like that is is a lot of fun as well. Yeah, absolutely. Then it was it was to me. It, it was a, such a good reminder of how that game went and it, it almost foreshadowed their whole career. I mean, we ended up mm-hmm. watching more than the first inning. I knew they were not going to watch the whole game. No one has time for that, but right. they wanted to see that, that final play, which was the Brad Ausmus bunt attempt that it was textbook PFP. Adam fields the, the bunt flips it to Yachty tags the guy out, throws to Albert at first for the double play. <laughs> and you know, 15 years later, there they are, same configuration, same team, same uniform, um, all with very prestigious careers and such an impact on the Cardinals. So for me, I'm not sure what 2023 holds. I'm sure we'll get to that. I think there are plenty of reasons to be excited about it. Um, But 2022 will always be special for me. 
even if they didn't accomplish their 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 final goal, just the momentum of that season building up, the milestones, the stories, the people. I mean, I I don't think it gets any better than that. Can you ever imagine a season where a team has an MVP and an MVP runner up and it's like third or fourth best story of the year? I mean, that you know, we kind of I don't want to say we gloss over what Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado do did because I mean, it was still a very important, very meaningful, but it doesn't seem like it has the same impact as it would have if they'd done it in 2021 or 2023. Right. And I think Paul Goldschmidt's very happy about that. Um, <laughs> Probably. But no, I, I, again, you think about the storylines, the lockout ending, new manager, all the things we thought we'd be talking about, we still talked about, but they just were not even close to the magnitude of, of what really went down in 2022. And I know Cardinals fans were disappointed about how that wildcard series went. I was not expecting that. I was built for October. I had bags packed. I had everything. I had like ordered nice clothes for the postseason because I really like, I mean, I don't know if you guys ever see me at work. It's not the best reflection of who I am. <laughs> but for the postseason, you got to bring your A game. So, uh, and I was, I was pretty shocked at that ending. I know it leaves a bitter taste, but I hope when, when that subsides and usually the promise of spring training can help ease the pain of, a, of an early postseason loss the, the year prior, I hope that Cardinals fans are and baseball fans in general are able to look back at what happened with this 2022 team and appreciate all of those moments because it is so easy to forget all the things that happened. Is there another story for you that stood out? I mean, either you wrote or just a storyline beyond the ones that we've kind of talked about and what that overshadowed everything. It's a good question. Again, I'm trying to think. Of, of all the different <laughs> angles. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure as soon as this, this podcast ends, I'll think of something. Um, I, I really liked, we didn't get to spend a lot of time on it because it was just the second half of the season. It was the Albert Pujols show. But mm -hmm. to see Lars Newtbar come into himself and, and become a, a legitimate threat on this team. I mean, the Cardinals are going to be relying on him so heavily in 2023. Seeing a, a good-natured guy with so much charisma and character and have such a, a laughable, fun presence and then go out there and, and get knocked down a lot in the first half of the season. I mean, he was riding the, the bus between Memphis and uh, St. Louis quite often and really take that as a challenge and thrive in the second half. That was really cool. That's something I wish I had more time to, to look back on and reflect on and write about. Um, I'm sure Lars will, will keep us busy in 2023, <laughs> but that for me was a real, I, I, it's really cool to see the young guys that, you know, from the minors come up, struggle a little bit and then ultimately shine. I mean, and, and you see like guys like Andre Pallante, that was a really cool story for me. Met him in the fall league. Same with Zach Thompson in 2021. Mm -hmm. Uh, after the 2021 season and here they are in 2022 big leaguers making an impact that's really cool too I do love those kinds of stories so and again before we shift to 2023 I want to talk a little bit about the news of this week of the last couple of days of Scott Rowland making it into the Hall of Fame um, did that surprise you at all I know that there was been a lot of talk and it was kind of like it was kind of well, obviously borderline at 76% uh, when he got in. Did it surprise you that he made it in this year? It didn't surprise me. I, I figured he was going to get in at some point based on how his ballots were trajectory and the percentage. 
Um, but I am a big, I'm a big hall of fame tracker on the ballot tracker on Twitter <laughs> and I could see the way it was trending. And I thought, you know, mathematically he's probably getting in. And to me, that was, I'm a, I'm not a hall of fame voter yet. I, and I'm not here to criticize any strategy or start any kind of debate, but I was really hoping there would not be a shutout this year in the hall of fame. I think, uh, it's, it's good for baseball to recognize who was especially outstanding during their generation. And I thought Scott Rowland was the best defensive third baseman of his generation. And the more that baseball advances how they uh, evaluate defense and the more that we see third base as less of an offensive position and more of a two-way, a two-way role, I think we'll start to see more appreciation for those very strong. I'm not saying Scott Rowland wasn't a great offensive player. Right. I mean, I, I hear the arguments. He never led. Uh, he never led a, a category in offense in his career. Okay, but he was an outstanding defender with 300 home runs, 2,000 hits, and 500 doubles. To me, that is Hall of Fame worthy. I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see more treatment trending in his direction for third baseman. You know, we have Adrian Beltre on the on the ballot. But when you look at the modern-day third baseman, like Nolan Arnato, of course, Manny Machado, Matt Chapman, I hope that the way that baseball is trending with their metrics and their analytics, there is a way to better value defense, especially at third base. Yeah, I agree that it just doesn't seem to get the, the recognition that it should. Um, it, it's been interesting because, of course, being a Cardinal fan, watching Scott Rowland, you know, I've always felt like he was a Hall of Famer, but to see some of the blowback on Twitter of people that just just didn't think he was going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, he should have been elected. And the more I looked at that, it looked like it was coming from big cities. And then really the fact that Scott played all of his career kind of in the Midwest, do you think that held held him back a little bit still? Um, I think, I'm not sure because when he was, when he was breaking down, again, Scott Rowland debuted the year I was born. So most of my <laughs> memories of Scott Rowland was actually him as a Cincinnati Red. Oh, yeah, but okay. when, you're, when he was breaking down, I thought this was very cool of Scott Rowland to do, by the way. After it was announced, he was in the Hall of Fame. And he did his MLB Network interview. And he did his uh, national BBWA interview. He reached out to the Reds PR. And he said, hey, is there a way to set up a second Zoom call with just the reporters from the regional markets I played in? So the Cincinnati Reds set up a second Zoom outside of the BBWAA that, uh, for, per Scott's request for writers from Philly, St. Louis, Toronto, and Cincinnati, of course. Hmm. And he, which was a complete class act. I mean, it was a highlight of your life. And you're spending it adding on more media. Um, that was really unexpected to me. But he was breaking down how each city that he played in played a, a, a critical role in his career. So he learned the game in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. But when he got to St. Louis, it was the veteran presence that he credited that changed the way he thought about how he should be playing the game that changed him from just, okay, I'm going to, he said, I'm going to show up at three o'clock because I'm supposed to show up at three o'clock. He said the veterans there at that time, like Chris Carpenter would show up at three o'clock because they wanted to play baseball. And that kind of changed his mindset. Toronto, he was there briefly, you know, but still very good player. I know there were some injuries there, but in Cincinnati, he also toward in the end of his career, he changed the culture there as well. So I'm not sure if it's because he, I don't think it's necessarily because he didn't play in bigger markets. I mean, Philly was a pretty big market. Mm -hmm. I know St. Louis isn't a big market by geographic location, but when he played, the Cardinals were certainly a force at the time. Uh, I think it's just more or less 
a little bit is people just being mad at the internet, right? Like people well, just fair. like to be mad and, and to argue. But I, I just think that there is uh, not a lot of consistency in how the BBWA voters vote. And that leaves things open for interpretation. Um, but I will say, a long, to make a long story short, that I think that Scott Rowland's impact on the game and how he impacted each of the franchises that he was with also speaks to a Hall of Fame caliber resume. Yeah, I was reading uh, uh, Trent Rosencrantz's uh, article about Roland and his impact on Joey Votto and the others in Cincinnati, as you were saying, and and how that, you know, there's going to be very soon that nobody's going to be in Cincinnati that played with Scott Rowland, but his impact is still going to be felt there. Um, I think those are the kind of players that you need to have in the Hall of Fame, right? I mean, those are the ones that are, it's more than just putting up the numbers. It's also how they play the game. Right. And there, there's a reason the character clause is, is in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, I'm not here to be the, the morality police or anything like that. But I do think a strong character and how you carried yourself and how you represented the game should be taken into consideration as well. But again, I'm not a voter. I still have eight more years to worry about that. Um, and I, I really do have a lot of respect for the voters. It is not an easy task by any means. And I think it's incredibly important. So uh, I, I hope that voters continue to make their ballots transparent and uh, we can continue having healthy discourse about the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, although occasionally there are some voters we kind of wish they didn't right. put their ballots <laughs> out there because then you do get the fights going on. But uh, but yes, on the whole, I think that's a very big a big deal. Is this is that something you're excited about? I know, like you said, eight years down the road, it's still a ways away. But is that something that you're excited about eventually being able to do? It's something that I'm just hopeful I am able to do because that would mean that I have, you know, kept a job in, in baseball for <laughs> a decade. And, you know, every year it, it's just another realization. I mean, we're almost to spring training. I was just talking to Polo Asensio today about this. And I, I joked, I was like, I'm almost ready for spring. I can feel myself defrosting as we speak because every year that I get to do this, it's just, uh, it's cliche and I'm not supposed to use cliches as a writer, but it really is a dream come true. I mean, don't get me wrong, the season can be grueling. Not every day is, is a beautiful day at the ballpark. There are plenty of days where it is a long and tiring day at the ballpark, but I'd still rather be there than anyone else. So I'm just going to keep my fingers crossed that I can do this job as long as I can. Is it a goal of mine, career eyes one day to be able to vote in the Hall of Fame? Absolutely. I think it's important for the sport. Um, but I'll just be grateful to have had 10 years of, of service time, if you will, because that would mean I had been lucky enough to do my dream job for 10 years. Well, you've definitely come out of the gate strong, so I think I, I feel pretty good about your you getting that long, that far along. If not, you know, much longer. I mean, you may just challenge Derek's records of of longevity. Even humble, maybe you can do humbles. I don't. I don't think I have fifty one years in me. He is a different <laughs> breed. He he truly is one of a kind, and uh, the press box will certainly be less exciting for me. I'm sure his life will be a lot more quiet because he's had to sit next to me every single day. Um, but something tells me we'll see Kamish plenty next year. And I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to it. I mean, you can't keep a guy out that's got his name on the door. I don't think so. Well, he jokes. He it's only, it's half of his press box. So fair. I guess that's true. Uh, you did, you, you mentioned you got to make it to your first winter warmup. Um, what was that like just over overall experience there before you, before we get into, you know, what we talk, what we learned there. That was a lot of press conferences, dude. Mm -hmm. I, I was not expecting that. Um, 
but I think it was Sunday night. It's always a difficult weekend. It's a fun weekend, but there's so much going on. It's a lot of our, our first kind of, you know, Mo speaks for the first time that year. The DeWitt speak, Ollie speaks. You're seeing all these players and, you know, you check in and you text, but these are formal press conferences. And on top of that, we were planning on our first writer's dinner in, in mm. two year or three years and my first writer's dinner ever um, the same weekend. And I just was like sensory overload. And, uh, but we prevailed. The, the guys were insightful. I love when the prospects come. The prospects are so exciting and there's so many young, uh, just alluring talents that are going to be on the big league, uh, at big league camp this year. So getting to talk to some of them was exciting. Uh, I really liked it. I was only able to go out to ballpark village once because we have to stay in the media room. You never know when these guys are coming for their press conferences, by the way. It's just kind mm. of like, oh, look, here's Tommy Edmund and Tyler O'Neill are both done with their medicals at the same time. Send them in together. So you can't really leave the media room. Uh, I left for one hour to do a Q&A beat writer panel with, you know, John Denton, Jeff Jones, Derek Gould, and Jen Langosh. And we missed uh, Matthew Libertor and Andrew Kisner's press conference. And I ran into Kiz later in the day, and he was like, you big league me. You all big me. Nobody was at my press conference. And I was like, dude, we had no idea. I'm so sorry. I know that's a bad look. And, you know, Kiz is super understanding and just an overall solid dude. But I still was like, wow, I would feel kind of bad, too, if here I am at my press conference and all four beat writers are just gone. And there were plenty of media there, too. But he said there was no familiar faces. And it, it made me laugh. Well, given the the, the offseason for Kisner, where I, I feel like occasionally he might have felt like he had... Uh, tire tracks over on his back um yeah you know, that was just probably just like another you know uh straw on top of the camel right i said no the, the worst thing is kids is i actually have things to ask you that were important and he goes yeah i'm sure you guys will track me down when it's convenient for you and you know tongue-in-cheek but that's just the way it is i i did i did enjoy winter warm-up though um i i would hope to have been able to mingle with the fans a little bit more but you know, knowing my luck, I'd go out to to go say hey for ten minutes, and then Mo announces a trade or something like that. Then what? You know. Well, maybe occasionally you just have to take one for the team if that's what it takes to get to Mo to to make a trade. Then you <laughs> you're just right. Have you're to right. Do it. Uh, uh, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but you're right, and I imagine that you ducking out for ten minutes might turn into to more as more people would try to catch you. Um, so, I mean, you got to you got to hear Mo. You got to hear some of the new guys speak was there anything that came out of that that really struck you differently than maybe you were expecting uh, do you mean in terms of just like what was talked about or mm -hmm. or like a, a theme uh either way either way okay i will say that hearing every single pitcher credit dusty blake uh, has me incredibly intrigued for what the pitching staff is going to look like. And I heard and I saw and I read the complaints about the starting pitching staff. Some of those concerns are, are valid. You know, I'm, I'm not here to disagree that there's some significant injury concern with the majority of the rotation. But seeing guys like Dakota Hudson, who struggled so heavily in 2022, come out and be refreshed and stay straight up. Dusty Blake changed his view of the game. Dakota Hudson is not someone who's been in the big leagues for just a couple months or something. This is a guy with ample service time. He knows what it takes to be successful in the big leagues. I mean, it was pretty, it looks pretty dominant before Tommy John. So for him to say, you know, I wasn't embracing analytics the way that I should. And Dusty helped me get on track with that. That was an immediate, you know, like 
eyebrow raise. This is something I should keep tabs on. Guys like Drew Verhagen, when he said, you know, Dusty was the one who pointed out to me that maybe I should get away from a two-seamer and start using a four-seamer more. This was right before Verhagen had to undergo season-ending surgery, so they weren't able to try it out during the season. But he, he said, you know, I've been working with Dusty all offseason on that four-seamer. Uh, Miles Michaelis, Adam Wainwright. So when, when Adam Wainwright is singing your praises as a pitching coach and, you know, uh, Dusty Blake has been with the organization for a while, but has mm-hmm. obviously, of course, just been named the pitching coach, hasn't even had a spring with him yet. That is a, that's a pretty encouraging sign. So hearing how many pitchers, no matter their age or experience level, whether it was Adam Wainwright or, you know, Mike McGreevy, talking about their excitement to work with, with Dusty Blake, I thought was a huge thing to keep to, to look at going into spring, especially given how many pitchers are going to be in the World Baseball Classic. A lot of guys are going to have a lot of opportunity this spring to show what they got. Mm. So it'll be a good test for Dusty to see what that looks like. Yeah, it's very interesting. Like you said, Dusty's been in the organization and he's been doing, I would assume, at least some of this. Is it just a, you know, because there's not a, another layer, he doesn't have to go through like Mike Maddox to get it to the player? Is that, you think that's what it is or is there, something else in there Uh, you know I'm not sure because I know that Dusty and and Mike worked really well together and they were pretty Mm -hmm. cohesive in and how they came uh, how they uh, got across the things same with Jeff Albert and Turner Ward from a hitting perspective but sometimes I think a new voice and a new change brings the results that you need and Dusty is an up-and-coming in in the Cardinals organization's opinion mastermind in terms of pitching and when you have a guy that is willing to he he doesn't get a lot of credit I think from the big league veterans because he never pitched in the major leagues but his ability to break down all this information and and blend down the numbers and the data and the metrics with also go with the old school pitching coach approach I think has made him relatable to all aspects and look no matter who you are, how great you are as a coach, not every single athlete is going to be responsive to you. That's why major league staffs have so many different voices out there. But every single pitcher that spoke to, about Dusty credited his way to make information understandable and available and his ability to convey that. And sometimes it's not necessarily about the information that you're saying, it's how you're saying it. And I think that can be something that Dusty, because he's so young, because he's so approachable and open-minded and has such a, an innate ability to communicate, really has the upper edge. Yeah, I think that's going to be very interesting. And, and you know, talked about it in other shows this is the first time the cardinals have had a pitching coach that didn't have significant major league time in forever i mean you know you've got to go at least back before uh dave duncan and, and well probably into the 70s and they didn't sure. hire people that didn't have experience back sure. then right so um so it's going to be very interesting to see how the team you know does this and and, and to hear this um you know, everybody being on board with it is, is a great to hear. I mean, I don't know that I feel like they probably wouldn't say otherwise, but I think it's more that it's not just a, Hey, this is cool. They seem to really have bought in and it's not just a, you know, pleasantry or formality. Right. It's not that they're saying it. It's what they're saying when they're saying mm-hmm. it. Right. Right. Um, on the other, on the other side of things, what do you think about Turner Ward? I mean, how is that going to, is it going to be much different than what we saw under Jeff Albert? 
So I asked Paul Goldschmidt this because Paul Goldschmidt and Turner Ward have a relationship that go way back to when Goldschmidt was in double A uh, with the Diamondbacks organization and Turner Ward was his manager. Actually, Turner mm -hmm. Ward was the guy that told Paul Goldschmidt he was not going to triple A. He was going to the big leagues. <laughs> so I asked what his reaction was when he found out that Turner Ward would be the hitting coach. And he said, my first reaction was I was really sad that Jeff Albert was leaving. He credited Jeff Albert for his methods and, you know, his ability. And I, I think Jeff Albert was respected inside the organization a lot more than outside <laughs> of it. Mm. But, you know, he, he acknowledged that he was going to miss Jeff and he was disappointed. But then he immediately pivoted to how excited he was for Turner Ward. And I thought about a conversation that I had with Brendan Donovan in September of last season. Brendan Donovan, who in my, my case is probably one of the, like, top five Cardinals to watch in 2023 – talked about how Turner Ward had just simplified everything from an approach, uh, whether it was what kind of pitch you'd be expecting, what you should do in a certain count. It was just a very simple, even-heeled approach. And when you look at his his staff, you look at Brandon Allen, and you look at uh, their – I know Dan, who has been in the, the minor leagues for a while, but he's also been working with Paul DeYoung pretty extensively in Florida. Those are three guys with three different viewpoints, all able to communicate, again, a, a common topic – very well with their players. So I would expect a lot of what Jeff Albert's approach and methods were doing were actually implemented very well in the minor leagues. And mm -hmm. it's why you saw guys like Brendan Donovan and Lars Newport able to come up. And, you know, guys are always going to struggle at some point. That's part of the game. But Nolan Gorman as well is probably one of those. Juan Yepes, Alec Burleson. They were all learning the same approach and taking in the same metrics and information as the big league staff. And I think we'll see so we'll see some changes, of course, under Turner Ward, but I think the over, I think that the overwhelming majority of those methods are probably going to stay within the Cardinals organization. It's just going to be approached a different way. Yeah, I think that's going to be very interesting. I I do, I do think that getting Jeff Albert out of there just from a scapegoat point of view could be very interesting because there won't be that focus on him uh, right. and then on the hitting coaches and stuff like that. I think that there'll be a little bit more of a grain of salt given for a while. Um, and I, I really don't know what Twitter's going to do without Jeff Albert, but I'm sure they'll find something. It'll um, be a better place. <laughs> we can hope. We can hope. Uh, and so I guess that leads us to the, then the last major um, coaching change, which then had a coaching change right before right. Uh, winter warm-up, Matt Holiday deciding to stay home and Joe McEwing coming in. Um it didn't feel like the holiday news. I mean, it was a little bit of a surprise, but it wasn't a shock. That, it, holiday really just feels like a guy that he's a, he's a family man and wanted to stay with the family. Sure. And, you know, I will say the Cardinals do have a knack for doing things at the worst possible time for me. <laughs> I had just sat down for a pedicure and checked my phone. And I saw a press release and I said, seriously, it's been three minutes. I've been in the chair for three minutes, but the, it was not, necessarily once I, I heard the reasoning which was family oriented surprising it's of course the timing of the announcement is not great mm. anytime you're about a month out from starting the season and a key if not the most key member of your coaching staff steps away that's that's really unfortunate timing and you feel for ollie you feel for mo you feel for that pitching staff because the bench coach is probably the hardest working coach or or employee of day-to-day -day operations what Skip Schumacher did for Ollie Marmol in 2022, I mean, and this is not to discredit the amount of work that Ollie did. He came in every day mm. and was incredibly prepared, always had lists, uh, scouting reports, information that he was scouring over. Well, who do you think made those reports? 
who do you think Ollie is going over the lineup with every day looking for the best, uh, you know, possible outcome? And then when Ollie's getting all of that prepped, who's out there throwing BP? Who's out there doing uh, early infield work? Right. It's the it's the bench coach. Right. So to lose such a pivotal member of your staff so early, someone that really needs to have strong chemistry with your manager. I thought that's why Ollie and Skip worked out so well. That's not a good sign that that puts the organization in a bad spot. But of course, Matt has every right to make that decision for him, for himself and his family. I totally understand. I do know that the Cardinals were put in a little bit of a bind. And the fact they were able to get Joe McEwing, uh, in Mo's opinion, and, and the Cardinals front office opinion, uh, was huge. They were able to get him and make that hire that quickly and find someone that they trusted within the organization. Ollie didn't know Skip when Skip was hired to be the bench coach, and they built up a great rapport. I'm sure that Ollie and Joe will do the same. But that bench coach job is no joke. There is a reason why so many uh, men that aspire to be managers take that bench coach job without question. It's because there's no better way you're going to be prepared to be a manager than by being a bench coach. Ollie knows this. He was one for so long. But I certainly understand Matt Holiday getting there and saying, hey, you know what? The amount of work that I'm doing that's going to take me away from my family on top of being away from them uh, geographically for 81 games plus spring training, I really got to stick with my son. My, my family's here. Totally get it. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it makes a lot of sense. And um and I think that's, I mean, to some degree, that's the kind of players that have come through St. Louis um, are those kind of players that tend to have that kind of loyalty, I guess, to, to family or or whatever the case may be. Um, but it's going to be a little bit interesting now, I guess, because it feels like we're in a reverse situation from, what, 20, 2020. Um, you know, when Mike Schilt was there, the Tony La Russa disciple who, you know, had been in the organization for a long period of time. And then you've got Ollie uh, as the bench coach. And now you're kind of flipping those roles, right? With sure. uh, Joe McEwing, who's got not, you know, obviously different. And he's been in the White Sox organization for a long time now. But still, that's that kind of, if you want to stereotype the crusty old veteran, um, <laughs> you know, sitting there in the bench coach role. I, I think it'll be interesting to see how that's, if, if that's how that's different. Right. And, you know, it's not like Joe McEwen has no professional experience, as you mentioned. He's spent right. several, several years with the White Sox organization. But I just think, and maybe this is a story to dive into uh, in spring, the, the amount of work and preparation that is required from a bench coach is, is truly what makes the major league uh, clubhouse and coaching staff go round. Um, and it's, yeah. it's an imperative job to have uh, if you would like your team to be successful. And I think that is why Skip was able, for many reasons, but a big reason why Skip was able to be a bench coach for one year and take the Miami Marlins job was because of how well he excelled in that bench coach role. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how he does down in, in Miami as well. Um, should be fun. Um, yeah, so going into spring training, I mean, what are you, I mean, there's so many different things. And you're right, with with uh, World Baseball Classic going on, a lot of guys not being around you're going to be able to see some some young guys get a chance to make their mark. Is there anything particular you're right now looking for? I mean, who isn't looking for Jordan Walker, right? Mm. I mean, there's obviously there are a ton of storylines, but with many of the the headline players, if you will, <laughs> departing for the World Baseball Classic, which I fully support. I love the World Baseball Classic. It is mm -hmm. one of my favorite events in baseball. Um, I, I think there's going to be such a heavy focus on the young guys and the prospects. And that's a really unique spring because the Cardinals have so many enticing prospects. And I'm going to go on a little bit of a, a prospect spiel here. I did this on the RNI Athletic podcast earlier today. I started my career as a minor league reporter and covered a ton of top prospects. And I don't think this is necessarily 
uh, an issue that is Cardinal fan centric or Cardinal centric. I think every single fan base in baseball has these expectations that their their team's top prospect is going to be the next franchise saving player. So you know we we've seen, we saw that about Dylan Carlson, saw that about Nolan Gorman. It is way way too early in uh, either of those players' careers to make a a, a, a a firm statement on what kind of players are going to be. I think as a baseball society, we get really, really excited about these top prospects and we should be, they're young and our access to these prospects in the minor league games is so much better than it has been ever before, but not every single top prospect is going to be the next uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. Not every single top prospect is going to come in here and completely transform your franchise like Julio Rodriguez, uh, Julio Rodrigo has. And while I think that we should certainly temper expectations, I don't think that it's no, if a, if a top prospect comes out and he's league average, that's still a really good get that you were able to mm-hmm. have a guy through his farm system drafted, signed, whatever, and be able to come to the major leagues and be a consistent starting major league player. That is huge. I do not feel that way about Jordan Walker, however. I think the hype about Jordan Walker is legitimate. It is real. He, I know he's only 20 years old. I know he's been playing the outfield professionally for like maybe three, four months. I know that there is, he has not had a single at-bat in AAA. I think that what he is capable of doing and his career ceiling is something that people should be really, really excited about. And even if he doesn't go out and make the opening day roster, we're going to see him so much this spring because, you know, no Tyler O'Neill for he's playing for Team Canada, no Lars Newbar for Team Japan. There's going to be so many opportunities for him to play that that is just going to be exciting enough. Um, but again, I'm all in on the Jordan Walker train. I believe the hype is justified. I believe he's going to be a true legitimate player in the big leagues. And the fact that he has a, a legitimate chance to go out and perform well this spring and see a lot of opportunity and maybe force his way on the opening day roster is really, really exciting to me. Hopefully we can get him up here before uh, June 28th, which is Star Wars night, so I can make plenty of Skywalker comments. Of course. Yeah, I got to got to stick with the brand. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's going to be exciting to to watch. I I, I, I do have the feeling it, it's hard for me to see this this team putting him on the opening day roster unless he does a Albert Pujols 2001. Right. Um, just because of the the people that they have. Right. I mean, they, they knew we've talked about Newt wanting to see what he can do. Tyler and Neil, Dylan Carlson, Alec Burleson, uh, you know, there's injuries and there's, you know, there's other, there are ways for him to get there. But for me, I, I'm excited to see. And if, if he can work his way on, that'd be great. I, I just, it's good to have the option that it's not, it's not going to feel like a setback if he goes to triple. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think what, what Mo has done in terms of his, his feeling towards top prospects, they're only getting promoted if they're going to play every single day. I think mm-hmm. that's fair. And if Jordan Walker is not going to play every single day, then he should be in AAA and he should be refining those skills because once he gets to the big leagues and he projects the way that he should, he will be playing every day. So it would right. not be the end of the world if he did not make the opening day roster. But the, there, the fact that he has a chance to, the fact that we're going to see him so much in spring because so many players are going to be gone, that is really exciting to me. Were you a little bit surprised in this offseason that they didn't, and maybe, and again, maybe they tried to again with, with the A's, but they didn't clear a little bit of that, you know, log jam in front of him 
you know, maybe moving a Burleson or something of that nature just to have maybe one less obstacle? You know, I didn't really think that they wanted to. I think the mm. more that they talked with Wilson Contreras' camp and the more they actually got to see him, I mean, that in-person meeting they had in Orlando a week before the winter meetings, that's when it changed from we don't know who we want, we're looking at everybody, to we want Wilson Contreras. And if they're the fact that they were able to go out and, and just sign him for money and keep that log jam, if you will, intact, that's a good problem to have. You want depth heading into spring. You want there to be too many guys competing for not enough spots. Because like you mentioned, there are injuries, there are setbacks, there's underperformance. We've seen this with the rotation for the last two, three mm-hmm. springs. If you come in there with just enough, you don't have enough. And I think that is a really good uh, a really good Something to keep in perspective for every single position, uh, regardless of, of how they're projected to be. Uh, there's no such thing as too much depth. So it was not necessarily surprised that they didn't clear it out by any means. I think they really like their young guys. And this also puts them in a good position. This is way ahead until, you know, July, August. But if they find themselves in need to trade, they have plenty of things and plenty of resources internally that they can use. Well, and you, you mentioned, we've talked about the rotation the last few years about maybe not having that depth. They seem to have the the arms now, right? I mean, they go seven, eight, nine deep, perhaps as possible starters. One, is that enough? And two, are those arms of the quality that they need? That's a good question. And it's kind of a two-part answer. Yes, they have, mu- they have depth. So let's start there because the last couple seasons, they did not have depth. I mean, in 2021, they had four, three starters, really, that they could count on on opening day. And 2022, they were still debating on their fifth starter at the last day of camp and ended up being Jordan Hicks, right? Yeah. So there are plenty of options, proven options. I think Dakota Hudson, if the season started today, your rotation in no particular order is Adam Wainwright, Miles Michaelis, Jack Flaherty, Jordan Montgomery, Stephen Matz. And Dakota Hudson will have every chance to break into that rotation. If something happens, though, you still have guys below Dakota that have proven their ability to pitch at the major league level. You have Jake Woodford, who I I still think is not talked about enough within the organization, uh, but that's a conversation for a different time. You have Andre Pallante. They really like him as the swing man, but he can start. We've seen it. Zach Thompson can spot start. Drew Verhagen is going to get plenty of opportunity this spring to start and see if the Cardinals can actually really rely on him as a versatile option. So there is depth. Whether or not that depth is good enough to last through a whole season, we will find out. I think the success of the season really depends from a pitching perspective on two things. It's if Steven Matz can stay healthy, because I really thought the way that he pitched last year there was, was pretty much up to performance. I know there were a couple of rough outings. That happens, though, for, for almost every single pitcher. But if Steven Matz can go out there and put up a career average season, that's exactly what they need from him. Their biggest question mark, of course, is Jack Flaherty. And the amount of optimism about Jack radiating from the front office, the coaching staff, and the players, it's different this year. And I know some Cardinals fans are going to be rolling their eyes and saying, same old story. We've heard this for, you know, two, three years. But this is a huge year for Jack. It's his last year before he's free agent, uh, eligible to be a free agent. And he seemed to just be at such a, a, a peaceful place when the last two years he was just itching to get out there, itching to pitch. He was, you know... I couldn't imagine, and he, he talked about this at winter warm-up, how he felt injuries robbed him of his last year with Yadier Molina, and he got quite emotional on the podium. 
-hmm. He does not want to experience that with Adam either. So it's, it's personal for him because he hasn't been able to pitch and help this team for so long. And that has been driving him crazy. And it, it's big from a personal standpoint, of course, when you think, what do you think about free agency? And of course, when you think about the Cardinals needing a legitimate ace, if Jack Flaherty is healthy, they no longer need one. So that's my big question mark for the rotation. Do you think if someone like, say, Dakota Hudson has the strong spring, is Steven Matz the first person they slide out into the bullpen because of how strong he was in that role at the end of last year? I think it depends on performance. I think there it'd be a little hard to justify paying a guy $44 million to be right. A a setup man or a, you know, whatever leverage kind of reliever he was, but it's, it's a, there, the, the ceiling of this rotation is high, right? Like there are a lot of things that can go really well for Mm -hmm. this rotation. When you think about the year Jordan Montgomery had, Adam Wainwright seems pretty convicted that he figured out whatever that last September was. Miles Michaelis, if you had to, if I was a betting woman, I would think that Miles Michaelis probably makes the most starts out of that group in in 2023. Mm. But it's going to come down to performance, and I think that's what's so healthy about this squad is that there's also a chance the Cardinals. I don't know if this is a legitimate chance, but they they could also go six uh, with a six man rotation to start the year just to preserve those arms. So. I, I know Dakota Hudson struggles, but I am one that is really intrigued to see what he looks like this spring based on his winter warm-up conversations and, and how he, how again, to go back to Dusty, how heavily he credited Dusty's approach in changing him. And, and he just seemed like a different pitcher. So we'll see. If I remember re- in the reading about the comments that he made at, at winter warm-up, he did discuss working faster, right? Because yes. of the pitch clock and stuff of that nature. Um, Giovanni Gallegos wasn't there. Do you think he can work faster in this clock? What's this going to look like for him? Do you think? Well, he's going to have to learn. Um, yeah. it was actually funny every time we talked about uh the the rule changing. Maybe once every three or four press conferences, someone would like tongue in cheek talk about Gio as just like <laughs> the the not so uh, subtle joke in the room that he is very very slow. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're professional athletes. They adapt all the time. I look at Dakota Hudson. He went down there and, and spent two weeks in Memphis and came back and was adjusted on the fly and was totally fine. And right. if I remember correctly, pitched pretty dang well that game. Uh, Paul DeYoung went down to Memphis, and I remember he got called out for a strike three because he took too long to get in the box. And he was looking around. He was like, what the heck? And then a couple a couple days later, totally adjusted and everything was fine. They're very adaptable creatures. Um, I personally am not really worried about a lot of the rule changes. You're going to catch a couple guys slipping in the very beginning, but they'll adapt. They'll be fine. Yeah. Um, speaking of Paul DeYoung, I know he's talked a lot about, you know, com- like completely reworking his swing and trying to get the mental aspect of things under under control. I mean, we haven't seen it yet, but what do you think? Same thing about Jack, right? I'm sure there's a lot of fans Mm -hmm. that are listening that are rolling their eyes like we've heard the story before, and they have. Um, I'm not sure what the expectations are for Paul DeYoung. I mean, with Tommy Edmond gone in the WBC, Paul's going to play almost every single day. Uh, John John Moselleck did not rule out that he could play different positions as well. They could try him out at third. They could try him out at second. He'll play a lot of shortstop, but Tommy Edmond will be the team starting shortstop. barring any major changes. So for Paul, the biggest takeaway for me in listening to him was that he felt like he actually made changes this offseason instead of being convinced he did. 
um, and then not actually making any changes. And that can be such a difficult <laughs> mental game to play with yourself. So the fact that he is able to pinpoint exactly what changes that he made and spell them out and describe them to us in great detail when in years prior, he wasn't really able to do that. He would just kind of touch on things that he'd like to change or had been working on, but wasn't able to pinpoint the actual change that was being made. That to me, the fact that he's able to do that now at winter warmup and detail all the changes that he made and what helped, what wasn't, what was a setback, what helped him improve. That was a big change for me. And, and maybe, you know, would, if I was a fan, provide me some more optimism that this is a spring he gets going. Because the Cardinals are, let's face it, a better team with a Paul DeYoung mm-hmm. that hits 240 to 250 and can barrel 25 home runs. Like, they'll, they'll take that, right? They're mm-hmm. obviously, though, a significantly worse team with a guy on their bench that can't hit over the Mendoza line. So we'll see. It'll be another interesting storyline, and we'll see it all spring because they're going to throw them out there as often as they can. Yeah, and, and the you know the contract is not onerous, but it is enough that it'll give him plenty exactly. of opportunities as well. Right. Um, but the, the longer they go into the season, the, the less they have to eat if they have to let him go. So, yeah, I think that's going to be something fun to, to watch as well. So, what, just a, another couple of weeks before you go? How, how early do you get down there? I think I get down there February 11th. The Cardinals have a, a weird schedule. Some people are, are reporting on February 12th. Some are on February 13th, the World Baseball Pitchers and Catchers. And I'm not even sure what the first day media reports is, but um, I'll be there on the 11th. I know a couple other people are getting in there right around then, and uh, it'll be away we go, right? I, it's, yeah. it's crazy to me that in just a little, what, three weeks, we'll, we'll have mm-hmm. baseball every day. And it's, it's also so funny to me because throughout the holidays, I was burnt out, right? It was a really long season. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I, I love my job. I love baseball, but I really don't mind this downtime at all. Holidays came and went. New Year came and went. About a week into the New Year, I said, you know, it's time. It's about that time to, to get back to work. So I, I know I'm definitely itching to get back out there. And those guys that want to warm up were the same. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine it, you, you do get that, you know, that the holidays is a good time to just step away from it. But once the calendar flips over, it's time to do it again. And yep. uh, I'm, I'm very excited for you to have your first full uh, spring training without knock on all sorts of wood, right. any kind of interruptions. Uh, and I hope it's, I hope it's a blast for you. It should be. Um, I'm looking forward to it. And definitely any Cardinals fans that make the trip to, to Jupiter, come say, Hey, uh, I don't really live tweet spring fame, spring games. Anyway, I just like to tell my job that I'm working. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of a, kind of pointless to live tweet uh, games. Um, before, before I let you go though, I will say one other thing that we've had, in Cardinal Nation this week is the addition of Chip Carey as a broadcaster uh, in the group. I don't know how much y'all would interact at all, but is that something that you're interested in as well? Uh, as in the the broadcast, the, the, just yeah. the hire in general? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I know it's not official yet. It should be within the next couple of days, but um, it's, it's not an ideal situation when you think about why they're making the hire in the first right. place. And you certainly hope that, that Danny Mack can get the help that he needs and his family is getting help and, and there's just support all around. But um, I'm, I'm certainly excited. We, I talk to the broadcasting team all the time, whether they want me to or not. Um, I'm always, <laughs> that's because they have better snacks down there. It's not my oh. fault. Um, like Polo Sensio, I'm always in his booth because he always has candy in there. And, uh, but, you know, I, I, had a, I, have a, I feel like I have a good relationship with the broadcasters. Brad Thompson's awesome. We've had some fun times out on the road. Um, 
Benjamin is great, their whole radio team. So yeah, we interact pretty, pretty heavily, especially traveling. Um, the, the traveling party of media, mm-hmm. you go through a lot together. So I'm, I'm looking yeah. forward to meeting him when that does become official. And I'm, I'm sure he'll do a fantastic job. I, I'm just glad that there was able to be a hire in time. I know it was a uh, timing the and the the weeks were winding down but i i think i i understand cardinals fans whatever the position is on on danny mack but i think it's good that we we turn the page and i'm excited to work with him yeah and it's going to be interesting just like with joe McEwing, is one of the things i've thought about the cardinals is they have not necessarily brought outside voices in um and so it's interesting to have somebody that's been in another organization come in and we'll see how that goes i, I think that'll be very interesting to see Absolutely. I'm with you. Okay. It's been a blast as always. Um, I look forward to talking to you again, at least this time next year, maybe even beforehand, if we can make it happen. Yeah. I'm always around. So you just let me know. All right. Thank you. Um, Next week, uh, Jason Hill from VVL Burroughs is going to join me. So, uh, but until then for Katie, I'm Daniel. Good night. Is it gold?